Today we are in our fourth week on the Sermon of the Mount. We're in the first section that we started off calling Kingdom Blessings. But as we've been developing this section on the Beatitudes, we've really come to call it Kingdom People. Jesus is describing the culture of the kingdom that was at the heart of the gospel that he brought. And he starts in the same way many of us would when we visit cultures that other people haven't visited. One of the first things you do is you talk about the people, right? Oh, the people there, they're wonderful, they're so happy, or, or the people are very needy. It's one of the first things that comes to mind. And so when Jesus describes this new kind of culture, he describes the people. And with that in mind, let's read it again from Matthew chapter 5. I encourage you to turn there with me. I'm going to begin reading again at verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. Let's pray before we dig into it. Father, we thank you so much for your living word. What a privilege to spend these months going through the red letters hearing the words of Jesus himself, this profound teaching that helps us understand what it means to be your children, to live in this culture that is to bring the gospel of the kingdom and influence cultures all around us. And the very first thing we've learned in this is that it's a blessed people. It's a blessed life. It is makarios, life that is full of joy and hope and fullness that has nothing to do with the circumstances of life. We ask, Father, that you help us see this journey through the Beatitudes as the transformational journey into which you have called all of your children. And that today we would learn what it means to be truly meek. And by doing so, inherit the earth in Jesus' name, amen. So we have gone through now two of the Beatitudes, and you'll remember, rather than seeing them as a description of different types of people or various types of circumstances that people find themselves in, each of these descriptions are to be true of every citizen of the kingdom of God. These are attitudes that are to mark us, and they build one upon another. They are stepping stones into maturity in Christ. And so the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. The language for each of these is in the emphatic. What Jesus is saying is that only the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven. 
we're completely and utterly incapable of entering the kingdom of God on our own. And the first step to entrance into the kingdom of God is to acknowledge that spiritual poverty. We can't save ourselves. Last week, Lou took us into blessed are those who mourn. The next logical step when we admit our own spiritual poverty is to then mourn our own sin and find the comfort of healing and forgiveness. And today, we come to the third step. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And this is one of those ideas that, if we were to be honest, makes Christianity seem rather foolish. It's okay that there are meek people, but the idea that all of us need to be meek does not fit into reality. Today requires courage. (laughs) It requires strength. It requires our putting on the full armor of God and standing against the attacks of spiritual forces in dark places. No, meekness may work someday in the peaceable kingdom when Christ comes and establishes his new heaven and new earth, but life requires something bolder than meekness, right? Let me flesh this out with you by taking you through a series of questions. Um, Who comes to mind when you think of a meek person? In your school, on your sports team, at work. Who comes to mind? Someone does, right? What are they like? What do they do? If you were hiring someone And the references said they're very intelligent, they're very capable, and they're really meek. Would you hire that person? Maybe for an office job, but would you hire that person as the head salesman? Would you hire a meek person as the CEO? If you were walking around the facility after service and you heard people talking about you, and they said he or she's a great person, and you know they're really meek, What would you think about that? Or would you say, what do they mean, meek? If you were being set up on a blind date, and the people were describing the person to you, and they said, well, they're really meek. That's sort of like the emotional equivalent of saying physically, they have a nice smile. (laughs) Would you go out with that person? Would you marry a meek person? Would you follow a meek person? Would you trust a meek person? Would you go to battle with a meek person? If you were in battle, would you want to be with the meekest person in your platoon in the foxhole when the enemy was attacking you? No, we like the notion of meekness, but in reality, We know that life is hard. It requires strength. And isn't the Bible filled with those ideas too? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. That's more like it. Meekness? Maybe later. Merriam-Webster defines meekness as, ready? Mild, submissive, soft, gentle, deficient in courage. So let's, let's try that. Say it with me. Blessed are the soft and deficient in courage. Excellent. I want that. 
is that really what Jesus meant? <laughs> it was rhetorical, folks. <laughs> Haddon Robinson, in his excellent book on the Sermon of the Mount, talks about when he was in college, he was in the drama department, and he had a bit part in a play, and, and uh, there was a friend that he had. She was all out for Broadway, and she had already embraced the idea that it was a cutthroat business. And one time he asked her, well, what do you think about Jesus? And she said, I just have a hard time respecting anybody who says the meek will inherit the earth, because we know what happens to the meek. They get ground into the earth. He goes on, do you find followers of Jesus who may be puzzled by what Jesus said in the third beatitude, we may doubt the statement at both ends. We are not particularly attracted to the virtue of meekness, and we aren't convinced that the meek will inherit anything, especially the earth. In the kingdoms of earth, it is the arrogant, the aggressive, the self-assured, the multinational corporations, the mafia, the porno kings, the politicians and dictators who take over the earth, only men and women who assert themselves get ahead. Or as Leo DeRocher is attributed to having said of the 1946 Brooklyn Dodgers, you know the quote, right? Nice guys finish last. No wonder the strong and ambitious people in the world ridicule Christianity. I was Googling a little bit on meekness and I came across Frank Zappa's song from 1978. He, this goes back. Anybody even know who Frank Zappa is? The meek will inherit nothing. Some take the Bible for what it's worth when it says the meek shall inherit the earth. Well, I heard that some sheik has just bought New Jersey last week and you suckers ain't getting nothing. Those Jesus freaks, well, they're friendly, but the expletive they believe has got their minds all shut and they don't even care when the church takes a cut. Ain't it bleak when you got so much nothing? So what do you do? Eat the pork, eat the ham, laugh till you choke on Billy Graham, Moses, Aaron, and Abraham. They're all a waste of time because it's your expletive that's on the line because the meek will inherit nothing. And I have to admit that if that kind of meekness is what Jesus meant we were to aspire to, I might, I might get in line with Frank Zappa. I just might. But fortunately, that isn't even close to what Jesus meant when he called us to be meek and promised that in that meekness we would inherit the earth. So what is meekness? Who are the meek? And the first thing I want you to understand is that meekness in the Bible does not equate to weakness. That's how we've come to understand it in modern language. But like all things, uh, many of our translations carry over from the King James some of these classic phrases. And meekness in the you know, 1600s, 1500s had a very different meaning that was more true to the original Greek. The Greek word is prios. And it actually means strength, listen, strength under control. Strength under authority. 
One of the manuscripts that we have that helps us understand this ancient Greek word is from the fifth century BC. A young soldier from the Peloponnesian War is writing to his fiancee about a gift he had for her, a beautiful white stallion. He described it as, quote, the most magnificent animal I have ever seen. He responds obediently to the slightest command. He allows his master to direct him to his full potential and then he says, he is a meek, preus, he is a meek horse. The horse possessed great spirit, great power, but was submissive to its master. Aristotle said this about the meek in his day. The meek person feels anger at the right grounds, against the right persons, in the right manner, at the right moment, for the right length of time. That's the concept of meekness that we're talking about here. There are two people that we're going to look at today that are described as meek in the Bible, and they give us a better understanding of what this idea of being a, a person whose power is channeled, who is able to be used and directed in a way that who they are, all that they are, is under the authority of God. The first person is Moses, and we find this in Numbers chapter 12. This is the verse, say it with me, Moses was more meek than anyone else on the face of the earth. That's a very interesting and bold statement. It comes from a situation where Moses was being challenged as the one true voice of God for the nation of Israel. Let's pick it up at verse 1, Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. And then he goes on and says, now, Parenthetically, now Moses was a very humble, that's the Hebrew word for meek, was a very meek man, the meekest of anyone else on the face of the earth. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out, and then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. So let's try to paint the scene here. Moses is obviously the one that God's speaking to. He's led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Miriam and Aaron, members of his family who have been helping him, but at some point think, well, why is Moses the one really in charge? I mean, is Moses the only one that hears from God? And they aspired to create this triumvirate over the nation of Israel. So I kind of picture they're going out and saying, God's calling all three of us. First time he's done that. Maybe God's going to tell Moses to share some of the credit. And in the midst of it, it says, now Moses was the meekest man in the whole earth. That's it's quite a, who would know that? God would. I think what's happening here is a contrast between how Moses is living in that moment and Miriam and Aaron. See, Miriam and Aaron 
are striving in their own for significance. And it's religious in nature. It's like people in the church who are not necessarily called to lead, don't have the gifts to lead, don't have the understanding of Scripture to lead, but start thinking, I know what's best for the church. Why, why should just the pastor or, or the spiritual leaders say what's best? I can, I can hear God's voice. It's Miriam and Aaron daring to step out of who God has created them to be. See, it's not that God didn't have a powerful, important role for either of them, but it's when they decided to step out of who God wanted them to be that they stepped out from under submissiveness to God. And by contrast, Moses, and here's a better way to describe him as meek. Moses was the most submitted man on the planet to the authority of God. That's what meekness means here. Whereas Miriam and Aaron were reaching on their own, even in a religious setting, Moses was completely and absolutely surrendered to the will of God and to the purpose of God. Let's see what happens. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words, when there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams, but this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. And when the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had defiling skin disease. And he said to Moses, (laughs) talk about a change of attitude, please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. And so Moses cried out to the Lord, please, God, heal her and they're restored but they're also put back in their place now here's the thing they were gifted and called to serve a certain role and when submitted to God it was a fulfilling and blessed role for them blessed are the meek but what they chose to do is determine on their own what role they wanted to play in life what what their priorities would be Moses was completely surrendered to him. This is the Moses that is described as the meekest man on the earth. Picture him standing up against the might of the Pharaoh and all of Egypt, liberating two million people from slavery, parting the Red Sea, setting up an entirely new government and worship system, sometimes getting angry and not always in a justifiable way destroying the first set of stones, smoting the rock out of anger and losing out on his ability to enter the promised land. This is the Moses that God said was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Because of all that, he was submitted to the authority of God in his life. Now, there's a second person in the Bible that's referred to as meek. In fact, He calls himself meek. Does a person come to mind? 
It's Jesus himself. And he says it in Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to read just three verses. We see this as Jesus' classic invitation for us to enter into followership, discipleship. Verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Where Jesus says, I am gentle, that's the Greek word, praeus. Jesus says, I am meek. Jesus? Meek? Really? Was he meek when he was clearing the temple? or contending with the Pharisees, or was he meek when he took authority over demons, or when he calmed the storm by speaking to the wind and the waves as two unruly children? Peace, be still. Was this Jesus meek? Yes, that's the point. I want you to focus on three statements in this, and they're broken down up there for you. The first is the phrase, take my yoke upon you. Now, do you understand the symbolism there? In the same way, a horse who is broken and meeked is the old English term. In the same way, a horse takes the bridle and the reins and the saddle and submits to its master, the oxen takes the yoke. And all that power, all that strength is directed towards good. Our family loves to go to the Topsfield Fair. And one of our favorite things, at least for me, is the horse pull contests. Those huge workhorses. And they keep piling the weight on. And the horses just can't wait to pull it. People who have never seen it might think, well, this is cruel. No, it's not cruel. They're built for this. They love it. They love to throw themselves into it. They just can't wait. The guys are just holding on to them. And then at the right moment, when the hook is put on the weight, then the rain will snap and they'll just take off. Power under authority. It's the same image here. Jesus is asking us to come under his authority. He's inviting us into meekness. And then he says, because I am meek. So think about this. Jesus was meek in that he operated completely submitted and surrendered to the will of his Father. We go to various passages where Jesus says, I don't do anything except that the Father does it through me. I have given to them everything you, Father, told me to give them. Jesus made it clear that everything he did was under complete submission to his Father. Therefore, he was meek. He was divine authority. (laughs) Authority and power that brought a world into being. He was all of that power under the control of his Father. 
And we see it most demonstrated in that moment when the purpose for which he came was in front of him. And he knew the trials and the death and the agony and the burden of taking on the sins of the world. And he he says to his father, Father, is there any way that this cup can pass from me? And then what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Jesus calls us into submission to him as he is in submission to the Father. He calls us to meekness as he himself is meek. And then there's that third section. What is the result of our coming under the authority of Christ? He says, you will find rest for your soul. And I'd like to suggest that that is one of the best descriptions of true meekness. Meekness is a soul at rest in Jesus. Think about that. It's not about not being who I am. It's not about ignoring my gifts and my abilities because those are what God's given me. It's about surrendering them completely and to be perfectly at rest Letting God do His will through me. My soul at rest in God. See, I don't have to fight for myself. I don't have to uh, strive for my own acknowledgement. I have all the acknowledgement. I have all the wisdom I need because Christ is the wisdom. Christ is the authority. I'm at perfect rest in Him. Can't you see Moses being at perfect rest even with the threat of his own siblings aspiring against him? He's at perfect rest and God fights for him. It's really a beautiful thing. So, if that's what real meekness is, and if all of us are to be meek as followers of Jesus, taking on the yoke, how do I get there? How does a person become meek? There's no seminar for it. (laughs) There's no workshop. There's no meekness certification program. You can't accomplish meekness. So how does a person become meek? Well, here's what we've learned so far in the Beatitudes about it, meekness comes out of brokenness. There are steps, one building upon the other. My first step into the kingdom of God is to acknowledge that I can't get there on my own. I'm completely spiritually helpless and destitute. I'm in need of someone to make that way for me. And then my next step is to acknowledge that not only am I impoverished, I am unworthy of the kingdom of God. I need someone to make propitiation for me, to make atonement for me, because my sins separate me from the life of God. I need to own that. I need to mourn. I need to be broken about that. And it's that brokenness that leads us to surrender to God. It grows out of brokenness in the healthiest way. You know, people can be broken in very unhealthy ways, but all of us need to be broken in the best sense of that word. All of us need 
to be broken before God, to admit our need so that God can then use us. There's a healthy brokenness. Several years ago, I was out at a conference that is not for the weak-hearted. It was one of these conferences that was designed to get really deep into your heart and your life and to help you see things in your life that up until this event you haven't seen and and they put you through some rather uncomfortable activities and then you'd spend a fair amount of time debriefing. And I, I want to be clear that all of this was under Christian leadership, thoroughly biblical, but the exercises were uncomfortable. So you built trust with this group of 30 people over the four days that let you enter into these types of things. One evening we had a lifeboat style event. How many of you have been part of those lifeboat kind of things you have to decide who's going to live and who's going to die? A few of you. 30 of us in the metaphorical deep water. All of us had to stand up and in turn explain why we should be one of the three who can fit into the lifeboat. So everybody else is going to die. Only three of us would live. Well, I was one of the oldest guys. I was a pastor. And so I did the right thing. I stood up and said, I don't want to be in the lifeboat. I've lived my life. I've served the Lord. (laughs) My kids are full grown. They'll do okay without me. I don't want to be on the lifeboat. And I went back onto my piece of carpet, the metaphorical deep sea. And then we all walked around and had to face every person in the circle. And we only had three popsicle sticks. And those are the three people we chose to live. And we had to look and look at everybody. So I had to say, like, if Preston was there, I had to look Preston in the eyes and say, Preston, I did not choose you to live. (laughs) (laughs) Then you go to Angie and say, Angie, I chose you to live. And you only hand out three of these. Well, I was shocked to be the fourth person in line. In other words, I still died, but I was close. (laughs) I had five popsicle sticks. Five people thought I should live. The next day, a young man said, hey, can we have lunch together? I want to tell you why I chose you. So we sat down and You know that we value authenticity here, and I learned a lot of that in these events that taught me to just become real about myself and minister out of that. Kent sat down with me, and he said, "I, I, I chose you because I believe God has plans for you because I see you as a broken person. I chose you because I see you as broken. And I'd like to see more pastors broken. And he didn't mean it as, a, you know, as an insult. I had to think about it for a long time. Uh, I said, okay, thank you. <laughs> and it haunted me. It haunted me. I'm broken? That's good? Yeah, I, I realize now That was really good. Now, I can't take credit for being there. You know, we had been going through a pretty rough season. I was really hungry, and I allowed myself in that setting. 
a safe place away from home to fully invest myself in that experience. And I think Kent saw me in that moment as the person that God wanted me to be in real life. I'm still working on it. But what I'm learning to do is to be present with who I am as a work in progress, (laughs) submitted to God, loved by God. I've learned to embrace and be brave about my gifting and my calling and let God use me to lead people in a way that He is leading and I'm following because I've taken on the yoke. That's the kind of brokenness that I aspire to. I think that's what Christ is inviting us all into. And I think when we get there, when we get there, we become powerful in ways that when we hold control, we are powerless. I think A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, describes it very well. The meek person is not a human mouse afflicted with the sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he or she may be in their moral life as bold as a lion or as strong as Samson, but they have stopped being fooled about themselves. They accept God's estimate of their own life. They know they are as weak and helpless as God has declared them to be, but paradoxically, they know that at the same time that they are, in the sight of God, more important than angels. So meekness is not geekness. What we need to be thinking of is mighty meek. Mighty meek. It's interesting. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, but yet it's an invitation to come and follow him and to die. Which means the ultimate meekness is when we fully embrace Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I live in this flesh Under this yoke, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I can do that meekness. And I invite you there as well because it's only those that inherit the earth. So what does that mean? Inherit the earth. Well, inherit the earth quite literally means the land. And in the Hebrew or in the Greek, the land actually means the people as well or the nations. So what Jesus is saying is that those who have submitted completely to his authority are those that I will use to receive the nations to myself, to bring the kingdom of God, to usher in the new heaven and the new earth. It's the meek that I can exercise my power through and in doing that reach the world. That's the inheritance that is ours if we can come under that blessed yoke of Christ's authority, I invite you there. Step into meekness. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you. We're so grateful that Christ became obedient, humbled himself, became obedient to the Father, even to the point of death on the cross. And because of that, the power of the gospel is unleashed 
into our lives. As your children, as followers of Jesus, we submit ourselves completely to you. We live only because Christ lives in us. In Jesus' name, amen.